At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycenian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycenian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. This is the word of the Lord. I'll lead you in a short prayer of illumination. 
Father, as we've had your word open before us, we pray that you will use it, use Reverend Spann to speak to us through that word, give him clarity of mind, let the words that he brings be the ones that you desire to be brought, give him all he stands in need of, and bless the meditations of his heart, and open our hearts to hear and respond to your word. In your name we pray, amen. Before we open God's word, I just want to bring you greetings from the Church of Egypt. Might sound a bit strange, me bringing you greetings from the Church of Egypt. I'm wearing this robe or stole or whatever they call it, kind of in solidarity with the church there. When we came to Egypt, Bishop Munir, who was my boss in the Anglican Church, <clears throat> said, John, when you go to Alexandria, at which when, where we had one of our campuses. He said, you'll be walking on soil that is wet with the blood of the martyrs. That's a church that has a history since Mark came just down the coast to Alexandria and lost his life around uh, 80 or so AD. When we went to Egypt as teachers, <clears throat> But in a lot of ways, we learned from the Egyptian church as well. When there was the killing of the number of men who you might remember the pictures of dressed in orange suits along the Mediterranean, we said to our landlord, Nagy, who was a Coptic Christian, we said, Nagy, are you discouraged? This is no small number of people. These are men in the prime of their life, all from the town of Minya, which is a huge center of Christianity. He said, John, we have never been more proud of our young people because they would not flinch one inch in the face of death. He said, John and Anne, to suffer for Jesus is in our DNA. And that's just part of the deal. He's speaking to two North Americans who come from where Francis Schaeffer said, have a culture which says personal peace and affluence is everything you should aspire to. And he says, Suffering is in our DNA. And we go, wow. Who's learning from who? But I want to tell you, as Reformed people, sometimes we forget that suffering is also in our DNA. When was the Heidelberg Catechism written? And why did they have to say, what is your only comfort in life and death while people all around are being burned at the stake? Why does Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgic Confession, how did he die? Sometimes we can forget that. In today's sermon, we will look at how 
could the Apostle Paul keep on keeping on when the reward he got for preaching the gospel was to get thrown out of town and to get stoned? What drives a man to keep on keeping on in the face of that? And that's the question for you and I as well. What will keep us keeping on as I believe the day in which churches and church people and Christianity was well embraced in our culture? I think we are seeing the twilight of that. And now the question will be, what will keep us keeping, keep on keeping on? Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the church in Acts 13. The end of Acts 14, they report to the church. Acts 13, there's prayer and fasting. Go out and do the work that God has called you to do. At the end of 14, prayer and fasting, this is the work that God called us to do and this is what we did. So the story you have is right in between. Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra. Lystra is completely out of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's comfort zone. The Apostle Paul was a city boy, an intellectual. He goes to a place where you could say the hillbillies lived. They call them the rustics in theological language. The backwards people is really what they're trying to say. Paul and Barnabas go there. Of course, they're going there because they've just been kicked out of another town. And almost stoned to death. And now we come to Lystra. And our story hangs on two pictures. You have the picture here of a man sitting on the ground, crippled from birth, And you have a picture here of the Apostle Paul sitting on the ground, stoned for the gospel. And you have both pictures. Both people are standing up because of the power of the resurrection. That's how our story hangs together. Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. The Lord opens the heart of this man who in many ways is a picture of humanity outside of Christ. We are crippled. We are dead in sin. We are unable to help ourselves. We are in darkness, according to Ephesians. We cannot do it ourselves. Often in Egypt and in a Muslim culture, we compare the biblical view of the state of humanity to that of Islam like this. In Islam, people have fallen into a hole maybe two meters deep, and with, quote, proper guidance, according to the Quran, they can help themselves and get back to God. The biblical view is that you and I, because of our rebellion against a holy God, we have fallen into a hole 100 meters deep and we are lying in the bottom dead. And we cannot help ourselves. That's the bad news of the gospel. We cannot help ourselves. But the very good news of the gospel is that we have a very powerful Savior who can resurrect dead hearts and bring that person out of that 100-meter hole. 
And so as you approach your neighbors, go with to them also with that sobering reality that outside of Christ they are dead in their sins. And it's resurrection power. And now when the Apostle Paul comes to this man who can't help himself, what we believe from the rest of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit woke up something in that man, the Apostle Paul, with the power of the Spirit, like two paddles on a defibrillator, bam! His heart is alive. Notice, the Scripture says, he believed he heard Paul's message before the miracle. It did not take the miracle for this man to believe. The Lord opened his heart, just as he opened Lydia's heart, to hear what Paul had to say. And the man, the scripture says, jumped to his feet. And of course, this causes commotion in a town, because in this town, they had a legend that the gods had come to visit humanity and none of humanity except two elderly people received them. So they had this tale in their culture. And now they said, the gods have come in human form, Paul and Barnabas, because of the miracle. And of course they want to do religious things to, to do something about this. And the Apostle Paul says to them I bring you good news but he packages that good news in very bad news what he says I want you to turn to do and about face from those things which are ultimately useless and turn to the living God so the Lycaonian or people at Lystra were doing this they had their religi religion with Zeus and Hermes they're doing all of this and this is their life it forms all of their life and worldview and the Apostle Paul says I bring you good news that you need to do an about face from that which has made all of your identity, you need to do an about face from that, which is the Old Testament picture of repentance, encapsulated in the word shuv, and turn to the living God as you leave behind those things which are useless in an ultimate sense. Do you see the word? It says vain things, futile things, other translations. It's as if Paul says, you need to stop skating on marbles, chasing after your shadows, because that's where this religiosity of yours, your old way of life is going to land you up. How would your neighbor respond to a message like that? How could you diplomatically bring such a message? Which is a very, very hard message. 
turn from those useless things to who? The living God. Implication, the gods that you have, they're probably figments of your imagination and quite dead. Can you imagine me saying this in Egypt? Where that kind of talk might just have me lose my head? And the Apostle Paul does that. Turn from those futile things. Now you might say, well, that's just, you're just taking something out of context. You know, the rest of the Bible doesn't really see it that way. Zechariah 10.2 For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lie. They tell false dreams and they give empty consolation. Ephesians 4.17 I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the Futility, same word, of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, same word, ways inherited from your forefathers. There's a comprehensive body of Scripture that says outside of Christ it is ultimately futile. I have a neighbor. <clears throat> the neighbor says to another neighbor, we are living the dream. And the neighbor's dream is two hybrid dogs, hot tub, a jeep, and a trip here or there, and no need for Jesus, and no need for his people. Biblically speaking, this person is actually living the delusion. Ah, that's politically incorrect, John Spann. You should not use that term. They are living the delusion that they do not need Jesus, they do not need his church, and they have heaven here on earth. That's a delusion. They desperately need Jesus. They desperately need his church, and they desperately need the, de the destination of heaven. They're living the delusion. And I say, God, is this going to ever really bug me enough to say to my dear neighbor, my dear brother, you're shooting too low. You're shooting way too low. There is something much better. You know, as we lived in the Middle East and in West Africa, you would not believe how many times we heard people talking about heaven. It's rough here, but heaven. We suffer here, but heaven. The church is persecuted, but heaven. And I ask myself, as I'm reviewing my Thursday flyer stack about this high, 
which is promising me a little bit of heaven here on earth. If you, John Span, buy that impact driver with the 20 volt lithium ion battery, you will have a little taste of heaven. And if when you're old and great and you go to this retirement home, we can promise you a picture with perfect teeth, perfect skin, and a perfectly healthy wife. Lie. <laughs> My father's macular degeneration tells me that it's a lie. And yet, this is what we're being promised. The Apostle Paul he says, guys, God has done all these good things in your culture and all you have is idolatry. He made heaven and earth. He allowed you to walk in his ways. He left himself a witness. And now, as a reward for the message, the same Jews that were in Iconium decided to come over and stone the Apostle Paul. Now, isn't this ironic? Stoning in the book of Deuteronomy was what people got for announcing false gods. Paul, the announcer, the apostle of the true and living God is now getting the Jewish punishment for announcing a, a false god. And they'd take him out, half dead. I have to think about this. Did the Apostle Paul go, is this really worth it? Is this what I signed up for? Is this what this missionary work is all about? Like, this is less than comfortable. Imagine that each of the children of your throng here, that many people had a, a hardball and threw it at you and hit you you'd be black and blue. And this was the Apostle Paul. And then, Scripture says, and the disciples came around him. Isn't that good? The disciples, he had the church come around him and comfort him. But where did they go? What does the Scripture say? He entered the city. Which city? Probably Lystra. In Arabic, we would say this man has mafish moch. He has no head. He has just gotten back, gone back to where his, he has been rejected. He entered the city. And the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. Where's Derby? 100 kilometers away. How did he get there? Uber chopper. He had a nap. Uber chopper brings him to Derby. Not exactly. The black and blue man, so convinced, so compelled by the gospel, goes to Derby, 100 kilometers away, on foot to share the gospel. What is driving this man? And don't get me wrong, I am not here to say, rah, 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 aspire to be a Paul. 
we want to find out what drives this man. And what I would suggest to you is that when the spotlight of the glory of the Lord Jesus came to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, something was radically changed. And what I believe he saw, he saw the worthiness of the Lord Jesus. Somewhere in that Damascus Road, the terrorist Paul sees the worthiness and the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus. And because he is worthy of worship, the Apostle Paul said, I will sacrifice whatever in order that those who do not yet worship him will do so. Brothers and sisters, this is the only motivation. The threat of hell for your non-Christian neighbor is probably not enough to get you up out of bed in the morning to bring the gospel to them. It's not enough for me. But the worthiness and the majesty and the beauty of the Lord Jesus who deserves worldwide worship must be the motivation that can get us out of bed in the morning and can get us out of our comfort zone of Tarsus and move us to hillbilly land. Because when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going from your house somewhere here in Hamilton, to wherever else it is, on whatever you have to do, make disciples. That's the Great Commission. And this is what Paul is doing. Making disciples. Because of the worthiness of Jesus. And may this scripture ask us, do we see him that way? And do we need a bigger vision of just how great Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sing of you. We talk of you. But do those things translate into a vision much bigger than our own comfort? Raise our eyes higher. Raise my eyes higher in order that I might somehow in your time and with great tact and diplomacy tell my neighbor brother, you are living the great delusion because there is a savior who is delightful and beautiful. In Jesus' name.